Winnipeg police fatally shoot a 19-year-old Nigerian student and his parents speak out. Poverty is on the rise in Newfoundland and Labrador with no relief in sight. Four people charged with painting indigo make their first court appearance. Three senior government officials in Maldives have been suspended for making negative comments about Indian President Modi on Twitter and Israeli strike kills a Hezbollah commander in Lebanon. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Nora and here are your headlines. We start this morning in Winnipeg, where the city's police force is being criticized after officers fatally shot a 19-year-old Nigerian international student on New Year's Eve. The cops were responding to a so-called well-being call. The unbylined article from CBC quotes the parents of the man saying that city police failed in their duty to protect and serve their son when he was experiencing what they called a mental breakdown. CBC reports, quote, the parents of Olofabi Stephen Opaso say the way police handled the situation with their son while he was in distress represents a grave injustice and signals the need for systemic changes to prevent similar tragedies in the future, unquote. In a statement, the family said this, quote, mental health challenges should be met with empathy, understanding and appropriate response. Yet the events that unfolded demonstrate a failure in the system designed to protect and serve, unquote. Here's what we know about what happened. At about 2.30 in the afternoon on New Year's Eve, police received a call about a man who was behaving erratically. The police said he was, quote, possibly armed, unquote. The next day, police said that Opaso was holding two knives and he was in the presence of two people. The police don't mention what the other two people with Opaso were doing at the time of the fatal shooting or why they were with him. The incident is being investigated by the province's police watchdog. According to the CBC, quote, the Opasos are calling for more training for law enforcement to help ensure officers have sufficient skills to de-escalate situations involving individuals experiencing mental health crises, unquote. Opaso's family is working with lawyer Jean-René Dominique Quilou from the Red Coalition. You will know that group if you listen to this podcast a lot, as I mention them regularly. They've been increasingly helping victims of police brutality navigate the system in cities outside of Montreal, where they're based. That, folks, is how you spread a movement. One thing the story doesn't mention is that the province's police watchdog has come under criticism, including from criminal defense lawyers who say that the agency is staffed by former cops who often protect police officers under investigation. Since it was created in 2015, the IIU has seen over 384 cases fall under its mandate, and only 76 of those have actually gone to court. Now, I want to note two things here. First of all, if you don't follow the group Winnipeg Police Cause Harm, you must. They do excellent work tracking the Winnipeg police and their racism and brutality. The second thing to know is that recently, maybe on the Daily News or a main Sandy Noor episode, I forget which one, I said that there was no good data tracking of police murder in Canada. And I was wrong, thanks to the listener who reminded me of the Tracking Injustice Project. They log every death related to a police intervention and in 2023, they counted 54 victims of police violence. I'm not sure if that number includes Opaso, but you can find information at trackinginjustice.ca. 
Next, to Newfoundland and Labrador, CBC News' Arlette Lazarenko is reporting on the rise of the cost of living and how it's impacting the poor in that province. Lazarenko profiles a mom, Tara Saunders, and her family of five who lives in Belle Island. Saunders and her husband access income supports, and since the pandemic, they found that their money doesn't go even close to far enough. Quote, the money was enough to buy the necessities and treat her family from time to time, she says, but that changed when the rising cost of living suddenly made the same amount of money not enough, unquote. Then, says Saunders, quote, not long before Christmas, we were down to nothing, literally nothing. My husband and I sometimes went without because we wanted to make sure that what we did have, it was given to the children, unquote. Lazarenko tells this story through the perspective of a Facebook group that was set up during the massive winter storm in 2020 to help neighbors to get whatever they needed. The group, called Neighbors in Need, has grown to 30,000 people and is now receiving requests for food and clothing every day. Saunders has asked for help in that group. The group coordinator is Courtney Barber, and she sees the kind of help that people are desperate for every day. She gives the example of a 75-year-old man whose neighbor had given him a loaf of bread that they had baked, and it was all that he ate for a whole week. Barber makes a critical point at the end of the article. She argues that the fact that there's a decline in the social fabric makes it even harder to deal with rising costs of everything. Quote, we need to get back to community because that's how we know the people who are struggling. And when you have extras on a Friday night and you made too much food, bring over a plate because you don't know the difference that you're making in their lives. Unquote. Now, the story doesn't actually explain who is to blame for all of this. It doesn't mention that the basic income pilot project that the government has announced will include people who are 60 years old to 64 years old, which is like, sorry, 75-year-old man only eating bread for a week, nor does it mention anything about who gets rich off of all of this misery. It's the most important piece in this puzzle, but we're left with a feeling of either, oh, that's so sad, or, oh, they have Facebook to help them out. Neither emotion actually spurns people into taking action. Next, news about the group known as the Indigo 11, the activists who are being accused of defacing a downtown Toronto branch of Indigo and targeting its founder, Heather Reisman. The Toronto stars Joshua Chong and Ben Cohen report that four members of the group of 11 made their first court appearance yesterday. First to be in front of the court were Nisha Toomey, Clement Cheng, Stuart Schlusser, and Carl Gardner. The rest are to appear later this month. The group splashed red paint at the Indigo bookstore located at Bay and Bloor Streets in Toronto. They posted images of Reisman and reiterated the long-standing call to boycott the book Mega Retailer. Reisman, along with her husband Jerry Schwartz, founded a charity years ago to give scholarships to people who serve in the Israeli Defense Forces from abroad and who therefore don't have family in Israel to, I don't know, give them a hug when they've beaten a child or something. The charity is called the HESEG Foundation for Lone Soldiers. The protesters are facing mischief and criminal harassment charges. They peg the mischief at costing more than $5,000, which is hilarious because unless those posters were seared into the glass, these are trumped up charges. They were also charged with conspiracy to commit an indictable offense. These charges carry up to 10 years in prison, and they were arrested in pre-dawn raids. This is some seriously G20 stuff right here. This is what happened to a lot of people who were caught up in charges related to vandalism during the G20 in 2010. A legal defense fund has been started by the group Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, which has raised more than $75,000. Now, some people online, including journalist Jesse Brown, have characterized this civil disobedience as being anti-Semitic because Reisman is Jewish. 
When they argue this, they usually forget to mention Reisman's charity or that this campaign has been going on for more than a decade. Though, I guess it's worth asking. I thought it was illegal to raise money for foreign soldiers in Canada. I guess, I guess not for the IDF. I don't know. Anyway, next, to international news. First, to Maldives, where three deputy ministers have been suspended due to social media comments that they made about Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Al Jazeera reports that the comments were quote-unquote derogatory. They called Modi a clown, a terrorist, and a puppet of Israel on Twitter. The tweets were all in response to a tweet from Modi about a recent visit to Lakshwadeep, Indian territory that is located in the Arabian Sea. The suspended deputies are Maisha Sharif, Maryam Shiuna, and Abdullah Mazum Majid. They worked for the Ministry of Youth Empowerment, Information, and Arts. Al Jazeera explains, quote, In the Maldives, some viewed Modi's visit as trying to draw tourists away from the globally popular Maldives, whose 1,192 islands in the Indian Ocean are dotted with luxury resorts, unquote. Akshay Kumar, an actor, said that he was surprised that Maldives officials would make, quote, hateful and racist comments, unquote, especially since how many Indians travel to Maldives on vacation. Maldives is located directly southwest of India and Sri Lanka. Indeed, nearly a third of the country's economy is in tourism, and India is the source of most of those tourists. Maldives President Mohamed Muizu was elected in September, promising to move away from the closeness that that country has had to India. One of the ways he was doing this was going to be to remove Indian soldiers from Maldives. Just 75 personnel, but enough to symbolically symbol that they are trying to orient the country less towards India. But once he was elected, Muizo changed his mind and no longer is planning to replace these Indian troops with Chinese troops. But the prime minister has a meeting with Chinese officials this week. And finally, Israel's military has killed a top Hezbollah commander in a strike in South Lebanon yesterday. Reporters from Reuters, Lila Bassam and Mea Gibelli, report that the latest victim was Wissam Tawil, the highest-ranking Hezbollah officer killed so far. Hezbollah's casualties since October 7th are north of 130 people. Fighting between them and the IDF has been mostly concentrated to the Lebanon-Israel border, reports Reuters. This is the second Hezbollah fighter to be killed by Israel in a week who has a high rank. Last week, Salah al-Aruri was killed in an Israeli strike that hit Beirut's southern suburbs. Israel hasn't claimed or denied responsibility for the attack. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Nora, and hey, guys, it's Tuesday. It's Sandy Nora Day. So I have a super special episode that comes from a conference that we did in October. You haven't heard it unless you're at the conference, and we talk about organizing. So make sure you stay tuned. That episode will drop in a couple of hours. Production assistance for today's episode with help from Mary Newman. You are listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a great Tuesday and... As I said, stay tuned. New episode, couple of hours.